to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, and beginning with verse 27. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the hour for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Our overall theme of this chapter is surrendered or self-serving. And we have seen those themes portrayed in each of the sections of this chapter. This chapter has a lot happening in it. There is the banquet that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus hold in their home to celebrate the resurrection of Lazarus. And at that moment, Jesus is particularly acclaimed, and yet there is also a heightened of the insidious plot to take his life. And then there is his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then there are the Greeks who came to seek him out. And we are looking at the words of Jesus as he speaks about these themes that are captured with this, with this phrase, surrendered or self-serving. We're looking at verses 27 to 33, and some of our previous studies have overlapped these, but there are truths within these verses that we want to consider tonight as we entitle this study, A Glorious Death. Now, when you and I think of death, we don't think of something glorious. We think of something that is to be avoided. This terminology is often used in military exploits. Uh, charge of the Light Brigade, Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg. This idea that there's this moment of glory to be achieved. Right now I'm reading Jeff Shara's book, To Awaken the Giant, and he writes in the, a style of novels, but using historical characters and events, and he's focused on the year that preceded and the events that took place at Pearl Harbor. And right now I'm reading towards the end of the book, the Japanese are bombing Pearl Harbor and it is anything but glorious. And the reality is that very few people look at death as something that is glorious. And none of us would in vision a death like Jesus and think this is going to be my glorious moment. And yet as we've already looked at that word glory, 
It really is at the heart of what's taking place here, of what Jesus is anticipating. And yet, that glory does not come except by surrender. So let's look at what Jesus is saying to us tonight. Again, look at these words. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. A few moments earlier, just a few verses previous, we heard Jesus say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, or amen, amen, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. In John's Gospel, this is Jesus' Gethsemane moment. Now, the synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us of the agony of Jesus when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, following the time in the upper room when he shared the Last Supper with his disciples and said, this is my body which is broken for you, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And then his betrayal and subsequent trial, beating, and crucifixion. And we remember that scene there in the Garden of Gethsemane when for several hours Jesus wrestled in prayer alone. His own humanity in conflict with his divinity. Father, if it is possible, please take this cup from me. And yet he did not say that without also saying, yet not my will but yours be done. Now, John does not record that moment in Gethsemane for us. This is Jesus's Gethsemane moment in John's gospel. And as we will see in just a moment, Jesus did not have this Gethsemane moment here at the end of his ministry only. And yet it was something that he carried with him in his heart because this was his destiny. The hour is now. This is the appointed time. With this appointed time comes the unavoidable demands of suffering and death. And Jesus is troubled in his soul. Remember, he is the word made flesh. He is in every way like us, while at the same time retaining his divinity and his sinless perfection as God. And so as he thinks about what is before him, he is troubled in his soul. The Greek word for soul is one that is very familiar to us. It's the word psyche. It's that inner part of us with our emotions and our will, our understanding, our feelings, our thoughts. The word for trouble means to agitate, 
to trouble the mind with fear, to terrify, to affect with anxiety. Jesus was deeply affected by this moment. Think of a time in your life when you have been deeply afraid, when you have been extremely anxious. One commentator translated this word deeply depressed in order to capture the extent to which Jesus is affected at this moment. He is looking at his death. His soul is deeply in turmoil, fear, terror, anxiety. And he asked this question, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. As I said, this wasn't the only moment when Jesus experienced it. This kind of turmoil, this kind of terror and anxiety, this fear. The fact is that he lived every moment of his life with a full awareness that his destiny was death on the cross. Jesus knew this. It was why he came. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9 say, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And... Once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. This passage of scripture presents to us a very significant truth, and it's not only here, but we also see it in other passages. The atoning work of Jesus was not limited to the cross. His identification with us began long before he arrived at this moment. He was a man who was acquainted with grief. He was tempted in every way, as we are. He was rejected, abandoned. He suffered heartache. He went through trials. All of this was part of his atoning work, identifying with us. And the writer to Hebrews says that through the days of his life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions. And those prayers and petitions the writer to Hebrews characterizes as fervent cries and tears. The depth of what Jesus was experiencing, the depth of his identity with us, the depth of his identity with our brokenness as a result of sin. All the things that we experience, fear, loneliness, depression, pain and suffering, all of these things that are a result of the brokenness of this life and this world as a result of sin, affected Jesus. He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. The writer to Hebrews says he was heard because of his reverent submission. 
And the writer to Hebrews characterized this as a process that Jesus was going through. He was learning obedience from what he suffered. So Jesus is not just at one moment faced with this decision. Will I ask the Father to save me from this hour? His life was characterized by a constant series of submissions, by a daily submission to the will of the Father. Isaiah characterized this in one of his most prolific messianic prophecies concerning Jesus. And the writer to Hebrews says, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. What does he mean? Because we know that Jesus is perfect. He is sinless. It is his obedience that needs to be perfected. Not that he is disobedient, but that he needs to be obedient in every way on our behalf as our substitute. Surrendered in every moment. Remember, he is taking our place. He is our substitute. And so he must be obedient in suffering, made perfect in suffering, as he identifies with every way in which you and I are broken by sin and experience the consequences and the impact of sin in our lives. At the heart of it all is his reverent submission. Jesus is surrendered to the Father. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, not at all. It was for this very reason that I came. And so the writer to Hebrews tells us that this process was necessary in order that he might identify with us, become the perfect substitute, and thus the source of salvation for all who obey him. We saw in those words he was heard because of his reverent submission. Jesus was troubled in his soul, but he was resolved in his spirit. The reason for his resolve? His surrender to the Father's will and his desire to glorify the Father. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7 tell us, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, and he quotes these words from the second psalm for today, Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, the Father was not pleased. They did not satisfy the penalty of sin, allowing the Father, allowing God to truly justify his people and make us right in his sight. That required something more. It required a body being prepared for the Son. 
the Word, the Word made flesh. And it required Jesus living in that body, being tempted, being tested, being subjected to all of the effects of sin and this fallen world. And yet walking every moment in submission to the Father's will, right up to this moment of greatest testing and this moment of greatest surrender. It required him being made perfect through suffering. It required a sinless body, a sinless substitute to meet the desire of the Father to satisfy both the will of the Father and a sacrifice that would please the Father and accomplish true salvation and redemption for his people. Here is a key truth for you and I. As you and I go through life, we are always going to be confronted with what Jesus described to us earlier as the cost of carrying out the will of God. And it will never be easy because this world is against righteousness. The devil opposes the work of God in our lives. And so we, like Jesus, will always be faced with this moment of testing. What are we going to ask the Father? To deliver us? To give us an easier way? Do you have a secondary will for me? A substitute will. But that will not bring glory to the Father. And so we may be troubled in our souls, but we need to be resolved in our spirits. I've mentioned to you previously Watchman Nee, the Chinese Christian who wrote prolifically, and he wrote much about our nature as, as people. We are body, soul, and spirit. The carnal Christian lives according to the dictates of his body. But the truly spiritual Christian lives according to the spirit. That is, he, by the spirit, takes control of his body. And those fleshly and carnal desires, or he takes control of his soul, his psyche, the fears, the anxieties, and the self-will. And Jesus was resolved in his spirit. He was surrendered to the Father's will. No way was he going to ask the Father because that would mean that he would never accomplish the Father's will for his life. He would never fulfill the purpose for which the Father sent him into this world. Confronted with the realities of the cost of fulfilling the will of his Father, Jesus emphatically rejected the course of a secondary will of the Father a less costly way. The reality is that that would be a way of disobedience. It wasn't the way 
of the Father for Jesus. And Jesus wanted nothing less than truly fulfilling the will of the Father. I have come to do your will. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8, And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. This was the Father's will. And Jesus rejected, even though he was deeply troubled, any alternate will. He wanted to truly bring honor and glory to the Father. It was this way alone that would fully accomplish our salvation. Nothing less would do what needed to be done. It needed to be done this way and this way alone. Look at these words in Scripture, the words that Jesus spoke just a few moments ago. But if it, that single kernel of wheat, dies, it produces many seeds. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, Hebrews chapter 2, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, Hebrews chapter 2. Once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Hebrews chapter 5. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews chapter 10. These are the subsequent words to the words that we just looked at. Sacrifice you did not desire. I have come to do your will, O God. It was by going to the cross. It was by embracing this cross. It was by being willing to die that it would produce much. His life would bring much salvation. His life would bring salvation for all who would believe. For whosoever, anywhere or everywhere. It was one sacrifice that would account for all sin and atone for all transgressions. It was this way that the Father would truly be glorified. And Jesus was very willing to embrace it. When Jesus cried out, Father, Glorify your name. We read that there was a response from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it. And as we read in this passage, the same thing happened that happened elsewhere when the Father spoke from heaven. He did on three occasions. This was the third. The second was at the transfiguration of Jesus. Peter, James, and John heard the voice of the Father. The first was at his baptism. Each time the Father spoke of his pleasure and delight in the Son. And now in response to Jesus, declaring his surrender to the Father's will, the Father responds, 
I have glorified my name and will glorify it again. The Father's been glorified through the life of Jesus, through the works of Jesus, for everything that he has done, he has done to glorify the Father. Nothing on his own, as he has emphasized, especially through the Gospel of John, and as he will emphasize again, all has been done to the Father's glory. But there is a moment of greater glory that is coming. And Jesus declared that this voice was not for him. Father was not speaking like the other two times, simply to, or exclusively rather, to affirm the Son. Jesus said, this is for your benefit. And then he spoke these words. The Father's voice is drawing attention to the work that the Son is going to do, to the glory that is going to be accomplished through the work of the Son that is embodied in these words that Jesus now speaks. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John tells us in the next sentence, he said this to show the kind of death he, he was going to die. Now, when you and I look at the death of Jesus, we see horror. We see such a traumatic and a brutal death. But both the Father and Jesus were seeing a glorious death. And again, Jesus captured his death, the kind of death that he was going to die, with these words. Now is the time of judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The human reality is that the death of Jesus was a most vivid display of humanity's wretched sin and depravity. The worst of human nature is demonstrated through those hours from the betrayal of Jesus by the kiss of one of his followers to the miscarriage of justice and the judgment that he is subjected to there in the Sanhedrin before Herod and then before Pilate at the hands of the Roman soldiers, and then on the cross. And yet, both the Father and the Son deemed it to be a glorious death. So let's think about the words of Jesus here, because in the words of Jesus, we understand how this troubling hour that Jesus has come to that so deeply affects his psyche is also one of such glorious anticipation. The first thing that Jesus said here, now is the time of judgment for the world. 
the word judgment that is used here in the Greek, krisis, it gives us our word crisis. It's recognizable to us here. It means a judicial procedure and decision. The administration of justice. Now is the time of judgment. Now is the judicial procedure and decision for the world. Now is the administration of justice for the world. Now, something for you and I to, again, recognize in Scripture is there are different moments of judgment. There will be a judgment of the dead when all the books are opened. There will be a judgment of the nations. There will be a time of judgment when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords comes with the host of heaven's armies and confronts the Antichrist in that last great battle. What is happening in this judgment of the world? What is happening in this hour of judicial procedure and decision? It is what the Apostle Paul captures for us in Romans chapter 3 when he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now take a moment and look at those verses of Scripture and look at every word that is associated with this idea of judicial procedure and decision with the administration of justice. We have multiple points here that the Apostle Paul makes. All are justified freely. So as to be just. And the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. If we think back to the context of this passage. The Apostle Paul has spent both this chapter, Romans chapter 3 as well as the previous chapters, establishing the depth of sinfulness of humanity. And the fact that none of us can pass judgment, can declare ourselves to be without sin or innocent. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. And the end conclusion, as he draws extensively from the scripture of the Old Testament, as well as the manifestation of sinfulness in human behavior, is this. There is none righteous, no, not one. And then he said, but now a righteousness from God has appeared. 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but through this righteousness that is made available through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, all can be justified freely by his grace. This is the judgment of the world. This is the judicial procedure that will take place on the cross. Jesus, as our substitute, will die in our place. He who has no sin to account for will account for our sin. He who has no penalty to pay will pay the penalty for our sin. This body that the Father delighted to give him, that is sinless and perfect, will be such a sufficient sacrifice, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in heaven or things on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. As we have often noted, although God deeply, deeply loves us, he cannot forgive our sins on the basis of his love. As John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, it was that deep love of God that motivated him to send his son. And his son became the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The propitiation, the payment, the appeasement of God's judgment the satisfaction of God's judgment against our sin. And thus, with that judgment met, with the payment paid, God can forgive all those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. And so thus God can justify freely by the grace that is based on the merit of Jesus, he can demonstrate his righteousness. He doesn't overlook sin. He pays for our sin through the work of Jesus. He meets the demand of it. And so he is just. And he is the one who justifies. He is just in declaring that the penalty of sin must be met. He is just in declaring that it is paid through the work of Jesus Christ. And he is just in justifying us, in declaring that we are sinless because we have put our faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. What an incredible moment. And Jesus is look for, looking forward to this moment. This is why I came. That I might make the sacrifice that the Father will accept. That I might fulfill the will of the Father. That I might make a sufficient atonement on behalf of all of those who will look to me and will believe in me, that I might give the Father a basis as the judge of all 
to declare that those who trust in my substitutionary work can be justified on the basis of what I have done for them. Hallelujah. Now is the judgment for the world. The second thing that Jesus said, now the prince of this world is driven out. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, God has created the world. He has made everything perfect. It's exactly as he wants it to be, revealing his glory, revealing his genius, revealing the perfections of his nature. And then he entrusted to Adam and gives Adam dominion over it. But when Adam and Eve sin, that dominion is lost. And what Adam possesses is forfeited. It doesn't go back to God. It comes under the dominion of sin and under the authority of the evil one. And he retains control. But now Jesus has come. He is the second Adam. He has come to succeed where the first Adam failed. Adam did not overcome temptation. But Jesus has come to overcome. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. It's interesting when we look at how Jesus expresses himself here. The Greek noun and the preposition that is used here means exercised out. That term exercised or exorcist as we might better recognize it, has to do with a demonic presence. The idea of how this is expressed is thrown out from over us. So this is what Jesus say, is saying. Now the prince of this world will be thrown out from over us. Remember that he's the second Adam. He is our substitute. He is identified with us. He is one of us. The one who is being made perfect through suffering. In his full identification with us. But oh, this is going to be a glorious death that he envisions. Because at this time and through this work, the prince of this world will be driven out or thrown out from over us. An interesting note for us, while the Synoptic Gospels record many times when Jesus confronted demonic spirits and drove them out, in John's Gospel, there are no exorcisms of demons, just this one total victory over the prince of demons. Hallelujah. This is like, wow, this is so glorious. This sums it up. This is everything. Now the prince of the world will be driven out. 
through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the devil's hold has been broken. His death atoned for sin. And his resurrection demonstrated that the atonement was so successful, so complete, that he rose from the dead. The power of an indestructible life. An immortal life. Because sin and the price of sin was no longer greater. The writer to Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2 says that because Abraham's descendants have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that through his death, he might break the power of him who has the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery because of their fear or because of the power of death. This is the victory of Jesus. This is the prince of this world being driven out, thrown out from over us. He has been cast out of our lives. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19, the Apostle John writes that the world is under the control of the evil one. He also says, now we are God's children. We are God's children, and the world is under the control of the evil one. And so he may have this world, the people of this world, the structures of this world that are in the hands of wicked people, ungodly, unsanctified minds and wills. He may have the world under his control, but in Christ, you and I are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. He can come against us, but he doesn't come against us from the position that he once held, the position of greater authority and greater power. For Jesus has overcome him. He's thrown him out. Hallelujah. Thrown him down for the position of greater authority and greater power over us. He comes at us, the people of God, from a position that is under us, not over us. The one who is in us is greater. Hallelujah. He is our righteousness, and so there is no condemnation. He is our justification. So who can accuse? Not the accuser of the brethren. Not the evil one. And not even our sins. He is our justification. He is the victorious one. 
Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And then the third thing that Jesus said here, and I, if I am lifted up, or when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Here's another interesting moment in what Jesus said. This word draw literally and figuratively means to drag. In the instances that it's used, it's used eight times in the New Testament. In most of those instances, it's used in, let's, shall we say, a negative way, such as when Paul and Silas cast the demon out of the girl that followed them in Philippi. The owners of that slave fortune-telling girl dragged them before the authorities. So in most instances, that word draw is used in this way, to drag someone before someone else. There are a couple of times, though, when it's used differently. One is in chapter 6, when Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. Again, this idea of literally or figuratively dragging. And then the other time that it is used, twice, in the same instance, in the same chapter, is when Jesus, after his resurrection, encounters the disciples. Peter said, I'm going fishing. The other said, I'm going with you. They go to the Sea of Galilee. They fish all night. They catch nothing. As it dawns, there's someone walking on the beach. and We know the story. It's Jesus. He calls out. Have you caught anything? No, we fished all night. We've caught nothing. Well, cast, down, cast your nets on the other side. And when they draw those nets, the nets are filled with fish to the breaking point. Same idea that is used here. And it's in that setting when Jesus renews the call upon Peter's life to be fishers of men. Feed my sheep. I will draw all men to myself. Jesus said in John chapter 3, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So how do we understand this word draw that both literally and figuratively means drag? Does God drag us against our will to himself? Of course not. For we read the words of Jesus here, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So there is a volitional expression on our part, whoever believes. And yet, what do we understand? We don't come to the Father except through Jesus. And we don't come to Jesus except through the Father. Jesus says both of those things. John chapter 6. John chapter 14. 
It is a work of God for us to be drawn to Jesus. You and I don't on our own one day wake up to the fact that we are sinful. We don't understand one day on our own that we are under God's judgment. Apart from the work of Jesus, as the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the truth that is revealed in Jesus Christ. The glory of God that is in the face of Christ. Two verses later, the Apostle Paul said, But God who said, Let there be light, referring to Genesis chapter 1, caused his light to shine into our hearts so that we might see this glory that is revealed in the image of Christ. Grace is a work of God through and through. God takes the initiative to come to us. Again, you and I don't wake up one day and, oh, I'm a sinner. I'm under God's judgment. No, it is God who gives us that understanding. No one comes unless Jesus draws him. No one experiences conviction that works righteousness except through the work of the Holy Spirit. You and I can truly say that God drags us to himself. He does entirely the work of drawing us to himself. And our very act of believing in Jesus Christ is a result of that full exertion of grace upon our hearts. The extent of that work is captured in the words of Jesus, I will draw all to myself that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that Jesus made sufficient atonement for all sin. One sacrifice for all sin makes all people who believe in Jesus as their substitute and their atonement to be holy. Salvation for anyone everywhere. John chapter 3 and verse 16. That whosoever believes may have eternal life. Anyone, anywhere. A gospel that can be preached and will be preached in all the world. As Jesus said in the final days speaking to his disciples, this gospel will be preached to all people everywhere, and then the end will come. The gospel preached to the dead, we are told in Scripture. Again, all people, all who have ever lived, that all should come to a saving knowledge, 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is God's desire. That all would come to a saving knowledge through Jesus, who is the one mediator between God and man. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 in the English Standard Version says, But we see him. We see him. How do we see him? 
God took the blindness that was on our eyes and he caused us by light to see. We see him. We can't see except God spoke and opened our eyes. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is indeed a glorious death. A terrible death, a hard death, a death that the psyche of Jesus fears, is afraid of, and yet, a glorious death so that by his will, he says, your will be done. And he willingly goes to the cross to taste death for everyone so that you and I might be drawn to him and have eternal life. Yes, it is a glorious death. And because of his death. You and I live. The words of the Apostle Paul, as he wrote to the Colossians and said, your lives have been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Because he tasted death for us, it is indeed a glorious death, and it is one that anticipates that you and I do not need to die for our sin. We simply need to trust the one who was willing to die for us, and we share in his glory. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus did not exercise any prerogative that he had but he was willing to take our place. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to submit to the Father's will. Father, thank you for such a heart of love that you would give your son as the judicial penalty for our sins, the payment for our transgressions. And thank you that you would open our blinded eyes and soften our hardened hearts by your grace that we could respond in faith. And thank you that because of what your son has done, you declare us righteous in your sight. We thank you that our adversary has no grounds on which he can condemn us and own us and subject us to the curse of death. Jesus, we thank you for your victory. Father, we pray that we would see more clearly all that Christ has done for us. We pray that you would give us opportunities to share the gospel so that you have the opportunity
to draw people to Jesus. May your word dwell richly in each one's heart. May Jesus be glorified more than he ever has before. And may our own lives glorify him. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.